remember a, a teacher once said that there are really two things on this path. To begin and to continue. And I feel like, okay, we're beginning, beginning again. And tonight I want to share about continuing and some reflections about that. And when I was reflecting about uh, sharing with you reflections on continuing, I uh, what came to mind is uh, kind of some things from my Zen days. You know, in the Zen tradition, uh, a Dharma talk is called a Teisho, and the Zen master I practiced with said that that word Teisho really means celebration, which I love because so often a Dharma talk can be seen as this is where I'm going to get more information about the practice and path. And if that happens, I think that's wonderful. And I also love this framework that maybe it's also just a time to celebrate through hearing about facets of, of the Dharma. And so, so that some of this is my intention with these reflections is that for Probably many of you, these might be simply reminders and nothing new, but a way to to celebrate these aspects of continuing that at least I found so helpful in terms of this path and this practice. And the way I'd like to frame it is, again, another frame that uh, was utilized when I was a, a monk in the Zen tradition. When I was a monk, especially during the training periods, once a month, we'd have something called die session, and die session was uh, die is great. It's kind of a, a kind of intense seven day retreat, and often it could be really intense. But it's interesting. Often we would have a session before that that would be called jidori session. So jidori session, you'd get be, be preparing as a uh, preparing a retreat of preparation um, before die session, and then after die session, <laughs> you'd have nyoren kashi session. And Nurankashi, uh, at least the interpreter told me, literally means uh, kneading the dough. So it's kneading the dough of your practice back into your life. It's like you have the retreat, but then you need to integrate it. You need to, need to fold it into uh, whatever's next. And so it was wonderful to have Nurankashi session. And, and the best thing about having a formal session is that it means on the first day, you know, the, the session usually uh, begins in the kind of afternoon, actually. So uh, when there's a session, it means that we got to get up at, at 5.30 in the morning instead of 3 o'clock in the morning, which I really appreciated. <laughs> and if there wasn't a session after the die session, that means you just had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning the next morning. So since we're so sleep deprived, it was such a treat, 5.30. I loved it. It still brings joy to my mind when I think about that. And also because I'm not a morning person, so it's like <laughs> doubly good. <laughs> Tomorrow, you could say Nyorinkashi session will begin for you. And these are some things that may help for continuing, continuing the spiritual path. And one of the things I feel is a fundamental quality needed to continue is passion. 
to be passionate. Remember, if, if you really reflect on the Buddha's life, many of you probably know the story. You're up in this palace, really protected life. And then he decided to venture off to be um, a wandering spiritual mendicant. And I want to point out that takes a tremendous amount of passion to engage in that radical change of lifestyle, to go from opulence to begging for your food. And in terms of the, the practices that he first did, sometimes restricting food, sometimes it could be a really an austere life. That takes a lot of passion to have the motivation to carry that out. It reminds me of this uh, quote attributed to the French author Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. If, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the people to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn, to yearn for the vast and endless sea. To continue, what I've noticed is I need to learn how to yearn skillfully. A yearning that doesn't get entangled with grasping and and ignorance, but rather something that motivates the heart. And it's a kind of language that the Buddha, you find, use. He talks about Dhamma Chanda. Chanda is translated often as desire or zeal. Or the word atapi, the Pali word atapi, often translated as ardent. When one is ardent in their heart, their heart is moved to be motivated in some manner. And these are even more radical. It's, it, it, it's something that you could probably find more in later Buddhism. But uh, another term that he'll, he'd used is Dhamma Raga. So Raga is almost always used to talk about lust. Yet in this formation, it's to have a lust, a desire for the Dhamma. And similarly, dhamma kama, some of you might know uh, kama, again, another word for desire, usually used around sense desire, used around a passion for the dharma. And of course, I don't think the, the Buddha is pointing to grasping, but rather to passion. What's going to allow you to be passionate about continuing to practice? When I'm passionate about something, I don't need discipline. <laughs> I usually need discipline around things I don't want to do. And practice is easier when I want to in a skillful way. And we'll get to some of the the, maybe I'll just touch upon a little bit of the, the, the complexity here too. And, and what I find helpful is to sometimes find the language, the vision that motivates you. 
for many of us, I know this has been the case for me for much of my practice, is that what can be so motivating is suffering. Have you noticed that? It's what can bring us on the path, and it's a, it's a great motivator. Just to know, oh, my life's actually better when I practice. And not only that, often the lives of people around me, their lives are better because I'm easier to get along with when I'm practicing. <laughs> so it's a win-win in terms of that. And that knowing that can be such a beautiful motivation that goes also beyond our little lives. We know that, that we're, we're different in our relationships. That can be such a beautiful motivation, but to, to keep in contact with it, to allow it to be a, a, a passion of some sort. And maybe some of that fits into some of these classical narratives that you find of, of the motivation for, for practice, the ending of suffering, you know, the eradication of greed, hatred, and delusion, going beyond the self. And, and I, I'm not here to like share these with you because you quote unquote should have to follow these, these. I'm really curious about the particular language that allows the passion to come alive for you. That's what's most important. You don't need to follow some book about Buddhism. What brings your heart alive? Seriously. This is important for you living your life. It could be to be a better person. It could be the aspiration to simply be. It's such a beautiful aspiration. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be passionate just to be? Or sometimes what has been alive for me is to be motivated to behold beauty. Sometimes I practice not for the end of suffering, but because brings me into contact with that which is beautiful. Did you notice this evening, this afternoon, when we did Appreciative Joy? I find it such a beautiful quality of heart. It just, it, 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 it cracks my heart open because it's so beautiful. Or kindness, there's such a beauty there, or compassion. Samadhi, which is described as beautiful. Mindfulness. It's a beautiful thing to partake in. Maybe that's your motivation at times. And hopefully you're hearing, it's not like you just can, it's not like you only get to pick one and that's it. <laughs> it's fine to be playful around this, whatever motivates your heart. What is it for you? Or maybe it's to serve. Maybe there's a sense of duty or to this beautiful yet troubled world we live in. Right? We, we don't live in a vacuum. What we do matters and it has impact in the world. And that can be so motivating to be passionate about that. Or as Luang Por Liam said, this is such an interesting account of this, really what made his practice really transform is he was like, you know what? I'm just going to practice just to practice. <laughs> That's it. And there was this whole other folding that, that arose just to keep it that simple. 
but what is it for you? What's the, and, and I think sometimes finding the language is helpful, right? Language helps shape perception. And to skillfully shape perception and to shape our hearts is really helpful. Even the language of going beyond concepts is a kind of language that shapes perception in a way. And it can be helpful. So it's that, that pointing that can be helpful. Not so that it's confined by that language, but so that it ignites the heart. And also, I, I find it important to be playful about the vision that you have for the path and practice. And again, this fits in, I'm not going to get into this, right? All these constructions are empty, but to learn how to utilize them in a way that, that can, can uh, uh, bring our practice forward. Sometimes what can happen when we become passionate about the practice is that it, it's going to hook into habitual patterning that hasn't served us so well. So a common one is the narrative of, I'm not enough. And whatever I do is not enough. I remember I was working with, uh, for quite a long time, a, a woman who is a, a, a concert violinist. This was her career. And later on in her career, she told me she dropped it because she found it so oppressive. And the reason why she brought it up is she was finding spiritual practice to feel the same way. It felt so oppressive. And when we slowed down, we realized that the kind of dynamic that she, was, she had brought to playing music was the same dynamic that she brought to spiritual practice, which was the story was something like, oh, I need to practice some more because I'm not good enough. Oh my God, I need to practice some more. I'm really not that good enough at, at, at playing the violin. Oh, and, and I need to practice some more. And then she realized like the same thing was going on with her meditation practice. And, and that's where the suffering was, right? Not good enough. So yeah, there was a drive, but it was really a loop. And I know this, I know this so deeply of really feeling this sometimes in my practice. And so of course we wanna bring our attention to these dynamics. And one of it is just mindfulness. The second one is what we were doing every afternoon, evening, which is the Brahma Viharas. Hopefully you heard how much I was trying to hammer in <laughs> the the fundamental um practice of loving ourselves this is so much a foundational piece for what we're doing because it can be such a deep hook because when i don't love myself it's gonna it's gonna spill over into how i relate to the practice I mean, if, if that's all we get from the practice, which I think would be amazing to deeply love ourselves, that's, that's well worth a lifetime, I think. And I shared with you that, that uh, wedding vow from a friend's wedding that, you know, I, 
I, I love you no matter what mistake you make. Can you love yourself that deeply? I love you no matter what mistake you make. I even love you if you feel like you're not enough or if you feel like there's something wrong with you. That's okay. That depth. I mean, there is such a, a truth to what the Buddha was pointing to when he talked about the Brahma Viharas being connected with this Pali phrase, Chetto Vimuti. Chetto Vimuti is the liberation of the mind or the liberation of the heart. Because when we're tasting that, there is, that is the freedom that, that he's pointing to. In modern language, I would say, being able to deeply love yourself as you are. So maybe if your if your uh, vision has been, I'm practicing to become whole again, and all that's happening is you feel like you're not enough. Maybe the vision should be that you're you're practicing to be okay with being broken. It's like you might know there's this goddess in, in some Hindu lineages, the goddess, and she's never not broken. I love that. Because it can undermine some of the, the hooks that are in some of our visions in some way. It kind of turns things upside down a little bit, which then turns things right side up. Bio Okomolafi speaks to this. He really, he runs with this idea of brokenness, which I love. He says, this idea of brokenness is missing in our conversations because we're looking for wholeness, righteousness. We want to get it right. We want to stick by the we want to stick by the script and in doing so we're becoming ironically brittle bodies now breakable you can't even have a conversation about mistakes anymore as a result of the operations performed on us by social networks so now i'm leaning into failure. I'm wondering about the promises of monsters. I'm wondering about how brokenness can redeem us from the incarceration of wholeness. We can take a concept like wholeness and bind ourselves. It just becomes another trap because of our habitual conditioning. Why not play to see if something else can come alive in this way that allows us to continue? We've began. Just two things. Begun. Got it. Two. Continue. <laughs> And of course, 
I think for me, what's at the basis of that is that ability to, to love ourselves. And I think passion, and again, I, in some ways, I'm trying to give, offer different language that might mix things up a little bit to allow your practice to come alive and get a different feeling of what it might feel like to continue with practice. So this is kind of my caveat. You know, I'm, I'm not sharing with you this kind of languaging to say this is the way it is, but more what resonates for your heart for you to engage in continuing with your practice. For me, what uh, feels inspiring uh, about this path, path and practice is I feel devoted to it. It's a quality of devotion, which some of you might be able to relate to, some of you might not, but there's, there's something about that word devotion that really resonates for my heart. And I think some of it is connected with this quality of being bound to the Dharma, that I have a bind with it that, 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 I, uh, that feels unbreakable, no matter what happens. Sometimes I feel like I'm so in love with the Dharma now, if my, my life would somehow get worse from it, I'm still down for it because there's so much love there. Jane Hurstfield talks about this feeling of, of being bound. She, the, the striking poem that I want to share with you. She says, there are names for what binds us. Strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them the skin that forms in a half-empty cup, nails rusting into the places they join, joints dovetailed on their own weight, the way things stay so solid, solidly wherever they've been set down, and gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence, more strong than the simple untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised. Proud flesh, as all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. to be bound like a scar, 
And I find it striking because I, I, for me, when I think about practice in this way, and some of you have experienced this, is that there are some difficult and dark times in spiritual practice. And I want to normalize that. Especially if you've practiced long enough, I'm sure you've had those times. And yet when it comes back, it's stronger, that, that, that connection. And some of you have been practicing for a while. You know this. You know the feeling I'm talking about. You have this connection that really can't be broken. And in some ways, that framework, what I love about it is then what starts to happen is there starts to become less choice about practicing rather than more choice. And I want to be clear, like the framework of choice, I'm using this a little bit differently, like the framework of choice, especially around, I think around addiction is so important, right? To be able to choose to respond rather than to, to go down the same old uh, road again. And yet this other framework of sometimes feeling like I have less choice can be so freeing. Oh, this is, this is the path I'm committed to. It feels so relieving that I don't have to choose. And I know uh, sometimes in dominant cultural conditioning, especially in this country, that can seem blasphemous since it's all about choice, right? You live in a free country if you can choose from the 10,000 different kinds of salad dressing, as if that's supposed to make you happier. And yes, again, there's a place to be able to choose in our lives compared to, you know, other forms of, of governance. And yet to find something to commit to like this, where there's less choice can be relieving and freeing. And most importantly, it allows me and helps me with the second thing to continue. I'm bound to the Dharma. And it feels freeing. It feels like love. So this is all in this realm of passion. What allows you to continue to be passionate about your spiritual path? What keeps it alive? And yes, there are specific things also around this that I think are helpful. The basis, passion. And then specifics. What are, what are the things that allow you to stay connected and keep your practice alive? Specific things that, that it allows, for me, it has to have a kind of emotional quality to it. Not for everyone, but for me, this is really important. You know, what's that for you? It could be chanting. I just want to point out, chanting has been probably the practice that's been done since the Buddha. The, the, remember, all of the teachings were probably chanted in some manner, and that's how they were orally transmitted with the human voice. 
and for some people, you know, I, I do want to acknowledge for, for other people, you know, Channing's not going to do it, but to know that that can be a, a beautiful connection with, with a path and a practice or other rituals like that, or some kind of offering like we do, we're doing in the evening of a water offering because it can have a sense, a, a, an emotional connection. For others, it might not be so ritualistic. Maybe it's just being in nature and there's some connection that you have with nature that you need to keep alive, not only because nature is so healthy for us, but because it's connected to your spiritual practice in some way. And of course, I'm assuming this might be the, the case for most of you since you're on this retreat, is regular meditation. Now, how to, how to keep some kind of regularity in a formal meditation practice? And remember the story of the violinist. What can start to happen is we can use our meditation practice as yet another place that we're just beating ourselves up which I don't really find very helpful for my life, <laughs> beating myself up. That's at least one thing I've learned from the practice. It's, it's really not the way I want to continue my, living my life. So just to be sensitive to that as, as you go on with a sense of continuing. And to get a sense, what is it for you? Is it practicing on your own? Is it practicing with others? Is it finding an online group? what allows you to continue with a regular meditation? And it could be simply framing it differently. I think one of the great things about sitting with a group is, is often I have the sense where, oh, I'm meditating in order to give my practice. I'm one more person, even if it's on a Zoom call, that's in the group meditating. And it makes a difference to come together. And then when I feel like I'm giving my practice like I'm, I'm doing this and this again just works for me it feels so fulfilling because then it's, it feels like a, a act of generosity and then when i give something I'm, I'm not as wrapped up in what i'm getting out of it it's like i go and i give my practice and then whatever happens happens it's, it's like you know when you really give a gift fully and wholeheartedly it, it, what feels so good is the the act of giving and then whatever happens from giving that gift you know it's you know it's it's the gravy on top and can be good, but ah, it's the, it's the giving of it that can be so sweet. So again, it, it turns things around sometimes to reframe. And then again, I'll repeat the of what we're doing in the evening and afternoon is is Brahma Vihara practice, especially in terms of how we relate to ourselves. Yes, how we relate to others to bring that in. But how I relate to others often is so intertwined with how I'm relating to myself. And when I talk about community, I do want to say this also is so individual. For some people, what really works is practicing on their own. For other people, having one or two friends to talk about spiritual practice with is something that's really alive. Other people like to be able to be in big organized groups. What do you need in terms of this, in terms of what the Buddha calls Kalyanamita, good friends or spiritual friends, or Kalyana can also be translated as beautiful, beautiful friends that support you. 
what does that look like? I, I love the commentaries. They, they have these li lists. And one of the lists are specific antidotes for each of the five hindrances. And there's only one antidote that's the same for all the five hindrances. What, the, what is that antidote? Spiritual friendship. It's not only about meditative skill, it's about community. And there might be other specific things that allow you to continue, whether it be study or making sure that you have time for silence or the next retreat, making sure many people make sure they put a retreat on the schedule when they finish a retreat. So what are those for you? And I, again, I, I'm not here to say, to prescribe what that is, but rather give descriptions of different options. And then another thing that's been so helpful for me is having the aspiration to fold everything into my practice. There's a, a beautiful poem by Denise Levertov entitled Benediction. Benediction, I'd say it's a, a kind of invocation or request for divine help, for guidance. So this is her ask in a way. She says, marvelous truth, confront us at every turn in every guise, iron ball, egg, dark horse, shadow, cloud of breath on the air. Dwell in our crowded hearts, our steaming bathrooms, kitchens full of things to be done, the ordinary streets. Thrust close your smile that we know you. Terrible joy. I love that vision to, to ask marvelous truth to confront us at every turn. How do I have this aspiration to have the Dharma be there for me at every turn? And where are the places that you're leaving out of your practice that you think, oh, this isn't my practice? This is what I love about our list. Like, it's filled with things that I don't think about, like an iron ball <laughs> or shadow or cloud of breath on the air, even in the crowded streets and the bathrooms and the kitchens full of things to be done. What gets out of, left out of your spiritual practice? I mean, seriously, be honest with yourself. Is it email? Texting. Do certain emotions get left out of your practice? Reading the news? Netflix. 
donuts. The small glass of wine at night. The disagreement with your partner or your neighbor. What gets left out? What does the mind try to exile out of practice? I find it an interesting question to ask myself because it helps broaden, broaden the practice. So really there's just two things for practice, right? To begin and to continue. And may these reflections help in some way, help you to continue. Thank you, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.